Welcome to World Oil's Oil Field Electrification Technology Podcast, sponsored by Joliet Electric Motors, powering today's oil field for tomorrow's energy. Welcome back, everybody. Hey. I'm Jim Watkins, and I'm here again with... With Shane. Shane, with, the man. Uh, with Joliet Electric Motors. Exactly, exactly. Proud sponsors of the Oilfield Electrification Technology Podcast. And we're back. This is New Year, January now. We're back at our favorite recording studio at the Blend Bar up in the Woodlands. Just had another spectacular lunch on a crazy day, right? That weather out here today is insane. It was, it was pretty gnarly out there. You know, the saying, the saying goes in Houston, wait a minute, and the weather will change, and it definitely was changing by the minute for out there, for sure. Yeah, when I was driving up, I got a tornado warning, man. I got a tornado watch yep. warning. It's crazy, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And today on the show, we have Simon Palacio back again, Encore Performance. Simon, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Jim. Yeah. A, I love that you picked this place to do this podcast. Isn't it awesome? It is Isn't awesome. It? Like I feel so like bougie. <laughs> well, here, your chair is leather bound and it has a buckle on it. There you go. Yeah. And that's a great thing about the blend. I mean, you can come here, you can have lunch, and then you can hang out in these big overstuffed chairs, have some bourbon, smoke a cigar, talk about oil field electrification. Figure out to- the world's problems and then create some new ones along the way, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so today we're talking with Simon. It was kind of like a follow-up to two episodes ago when we had Omar Arquides from 1898 yep. was on and Simon at the same time. And so we got kind of a very good overview of kind of like do's and don'ts when you're planning, right? Because Omar is involved with the whole consulting and planning out phase, and Simon's more involved with the design and construction side of it. The PE side of it. The PE, exactly. He's the wolf. He's the Harvey Keitel <laughs> wolf. He, he goes out and executes. So that's why we got Simon back today, because we're going to go into that a little more in depth. But we want to start out a little bit broader, right? Because one of the topics, one of the important things in oil field electrification is Shane just brought up before we started recording. So Shane, let's get into that, man. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the takeaways we were talking about is this tremendous demand that the oil field is creating when it comes to electrifying the oil field. And what I found from an interesting standpoint, from a takeaway from our conversation was that only 20% of electric frack is really the contributing factor to you guys' and to Simon developing infrastructure for electrification. And then the number we were talking about just with the Texas infrastructure and the grid was about, there's currently like 85 gigawatts and you guys are expecting to build, you know, add to that. And when it comes to infrastructure, like another 30 to 40 gigawatts worth of infrastructure. That doesn't sound wrong. <laughs> which is, a lot of, yeah. which is, you know, in a, in a short amount of time, I think we were talking by the year 2030 or something like that. Correct? Yeah, that was in the last episode. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you throw in all the Bitcoin mining and the data centers and all everything that the tech industry is putting on, like I mean, the load growth forecasted for not just ERCOT, but I mean, right. a, a lot of the ISOs is, it's a big issue to wrap your hands around. Yeah. So, yeah. so what we were talking about earlier, and it's a good segue into the, in the first, you know, kind of the first questions I wanted to ask you guys is, is I was reading an article by Alex Epstein, that's an energy talking points in the EPA, and he clearly lines out that the EPA has some unique policies and procedures and rules they're putting in place. I'll give you examples of them. You know, you got, they got cool names like coal combustion residuals and good neighbor and regional haze, and there's one called mercury and air toxic standards. But at the end of the day, what that translates into 
is taking a up to 10 to 20 percent of our reliable energy sources off grid. Now that's nationally, that's not just in Texas. Yep. And so I was wondering how that's affecting you guys as you guys are trying to plan infrastructure and bringing on this demand because obviously demand's not decreasing you know, at least nationally. Yeah, so when you say globally. it affects us, I mean, us as, as Burns and McDonald, but we're designers and engineers, what it affects is it our clients. Right. Right, I mean, we, we work with folks, you know, who have these big, I'm just saying EMPs, right, but not just EMPs. We work with, you know, technology, but me specifically, I can speak to that. We have some potential clients that are looking for build-outs over the next four years. They're saying, you know, we need 400 megawatts over the next several years. And then you're looking at, you know, what the regional utility has in capacity and what queues there are for available generation and then you, the forecast for what's coming offline and it's like where, where are we going to get <laughs> right. that right where are we going to get that and as an engineering as an epc and engineering you know construction firm it is not we, we are not you know developing and making those plans to build big generation i mean well, we are hired to do the engineering and construction for it but as far as policy side to drive that I mean, we see it every day there needs to be a shift in policy at some point that's going to further incentivize dispatchable, reliable, rotational inertia-driven generation. There is no reliable evidence to say that we can power 100% a grid completely, you know, without importing X power, you know, power and stability, you know, from adjacent grids from non-rotational sources. Mm-hmm. And by non-rotational, you mean like solar panels? And exactly. That don't move. Right? Exactly. Yeah. You know, so there's a concept that when it comes to the grid called rotational inertia that adds the frequency stability to the grid. So if you, for example, take some static load, you say, okay, we have this many megawatts that is a load source on the electric grid. And we let's say for some big event, everybody turns on their air conditioners and heaters and everything at the same time. And there's a big power demand that's going to draw a lot of current. And if you think about that at the generation level, the generator, let's say it's a steam turbine generator or, or you know, natural gas combustion driven generator, something that's spinning and generating, that spiking current that's coming out of the generator is going to create counter torque on the rotor of the generator. And that rotor is a big, giant metal spinning thing, and it has rotational inertia. So even though you might kind of hit the brakes on it a little bit, and the counter torque is going to want to slow it down, it has a governor that can open the throttle valve, put in some more steam, or open, you know, or burn some more natural gas. But that big rotating metal chunk of rotor is where that frequency stability on the grid comes from. Oh, okay. So for me, because I really don't, know, I do not know anything about this, but that's why like batteries are not great for long-term replacement, right? Because that just gets sucked down. There's no inertia behind a battery, right? Well, and and it, it, that's a limited power source. It's going to, yeah. it's going to run out eventually, but that transient stability, if you put a big power spike on there, something with a big giant rotating metal rotor can handle that transiently. Now, if you put a bunch of solar panels in parallel and whatever, and you have a big power spike on it, how does the different generation sources handle picking up that load? I mean, it, that transient event on that grid makes things go crazy and circuit breakers start popping and it just wow. it, it can't handle yeah. it. So the issue with going very, very high in renewables like that is a lack of rotational inertia stability for frequency control on the grid. And if the frequency starts getting too low on the grid, which was one of the issues with the winter storm, mm-hmm. if it gets too low too long enough, then generators will start tripping off because the RPMs on machines are staying, getting too low. Oh, but for yeah. things like solar panels, you know, the ERCOT has and the California ISOs, they've got a few studies about where 
events, occurrences, whatever the word that they used for it was, when there was some electrical fault, you know, maybe 100 miles away on a transmission line or something, you know, a single line to ground fault. And further away, an entire like solar array, a big solar field tripped offline entirely. Wow. Because it can't handle some of that transient. Right. That transient load. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's interesting because like that aspect, I guess that's the engineering aspect that you're bailiwick in dealing with this is fascinating because I don't think most people understand it. I mean, Shane, you probably understand that inertia thing because of the motors, but for me- I'm I, still stuck at bailiwick, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try to use that in a that, sentence later on the day. <laughs> you don't hear that in a sentence very often, that's for sure. But I mean, that type of thing is something that I don't think most people understand, right? You just like, for the average Joe, you know, Electricity is electricity. I don't care whether it comes from and, a solar panel or a, it, it or gets a confusing for some folks because you, they'll they'll turn around and say, "Well, what do you mean you can't have something powered 100 percent off of renewables like a grid?" Like I heard Germany did it or so, right, something yeah, yeah. like that. But what they don't what they fail to realize is that like you know Germany isn't an island, <laughs> right? You draw some lines on a map and say this side's Germany and this side France, but like it's not an island. It has transmission lines that connect. To, it's not an isolated grid. Right. It is connected to its neighbors, to Belgium, right. to you know, you know, Italy and, and, and Austria. So they can say we're a hundred percent renewable. Well, that just means that you are not you know burning carbon or whatever inside those borders, but you're enjoying the benefits of the grid frequency stability from all your neighbors that you're interconnected to in a larger grid. Ah, interesting. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. And so there's states. There are states and counties and cities within the U.S. that are trying to kind of pull the same thing. Like, well, we're 100% renewable. We're 100% solar power. And it's like, maybe if you think about, you know, you're just in this imaginary box, but you're still connected in a greater grid to everyone around you that is providing, you know, rotational inertia stability on the frequency in your system. And you're just leaning on them to do it for you with their, you know, their power sources. That's some tricky sleight of hand right there. I've got to watch yeah. for that in the future. I'm going to sound really intelligent. One time I'm going to be somewhere and someone's <laughs> going to be talking about that and I'm going to bring that up. I'll be like, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Are you really a hundred percent? You're not connected to anybody else because that's what everybody says, right? That's what everybody says. Well, if they, you're going they can be, they can be, they just won't have power a hundred percent of the time. Right. Well, <laughs> and I think that's an important point, right? That no matter when you're talking about renewables, solar, wind, and everything, I mean, the wind doesn't blow all the time. It's not always sunny, whatever. I mean, that's where the fossil fuel market comes in and fills in, right? I mean, you still need, no matter what amount you have, if the energy is coming from something that's transient, as in wind or sun, you got to have something that's stable backing that up, right? Yep. So, yep. I mean, that's why we'll always be around, I think. You know, in the oil and gas business. I think I'm good for the rest of my career, <laughs> which could be tomorrow or, you know, hopefully a little longer than that. So, yeah, uh, yeah for and, sure. And, and, and the point we're making is not new. I mean, this just 10 years ago, people were saying, eventually we're going to get to a point where this is a problem. And then you have like the winter storm Uri and the other winter storms right. and, and California's got the rolling blackouts. And a lot of it is just you don't have dispatchable energy sources right. that are providing the grid. But it's not enough to change people's minds yet. So the consensus, you know, among some of the folks that work in the industry, you know, at least I've, you know, been in this talk with it at Burns and Mac is like, it still has to get worse mm-hmm. before you start changing public opinion. Like, you know, well, then let's finally build some more nuclear power plants. Right. You know, if it's legitimately about carbon, then, you know, build a nuclear right. power plant. And then now you've added, you know, that stability to the grid that it needs. Well, right. you know, speaking of which we were talking earlier and, you know, you mentioned that you know, most of these nuclear power plants were built. 40, 50, 60 years ago, and they're getting to the point where 
they've got to be upgraded and addressed because they're going to their lifeline. There was only a certain amount of technology available to support that type of energy source, right? So yeah. that's potentially coming offline as well, or we're going to have to do something about that, right? Well, th- th- think about where we currently stand. I mean, we've built, I mean, I think Georgia built a nuclear power plant, or they're in the process. But besides that, the United States has not built a nuclear power plant since Three Mile Island in what, 1972, 1973? Right, right. And if you think about, you know, around then was the last one we built, that means the newest, newest nuclear power plants are 50 years old using technology that's 60 years old. Wow. And then we're still running Scary. ones that are even older than that, that are, you know, technology from the 1950s. <laughs> and yet the technology exists to make much, much better ones. There's just kind of a public refusal to do so. The ones that we have are fine that are in 1950s technology and they're 70 years old when they only were designed for a 40-year lifespan. That's okay. Keep them going because we can't <laughs> handle we can't handle the repercussions for shutting them down. Those are too dire. But building a new one, mm, so so how long would it take? Getting. How long would it take to build a new one? And that's your previous, oh, previous man. experience. So you missed it, Shane. That was his previous bailiwick. I, I, I started actually I my opportunity, long before Burns and Mac. I started my career in the nuclear power industry, and I left not because I didn't love it, not because I didn't think it was awesome or really really cool. It's just it's stagnating, right? Because you're not building new plants. You know, so where as a career, as an engineer, like where is my career going to go just kind of in this nuclear power plant that's old and falling apart, <laughs> no one's to invest in it. You know, you're not, gonna, you're not building new things. At least you have LED um, light now. It's a little bit better lighting down there. So, and we can spend, you know, an hour talking about, you know, the structure of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and how they have, you know, how they're incentivized to, you know, fine and create new rules and create new, so many new rules this year. The amount of red tape required to, you know, build a new nuclear power plant, it's almost creating its own problem that now you, you just can't, right? right it's, yeah. it's, it's regulated to a point that there's no real way to do it anymore. And then, so, I mean, I think part of that issue is that it's starting with, there needs to be a very major, like, executive level <laughs> government overhaul of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. You have to start there. Yeah, but it's interesting, right? Because in all of these conversations, I mean, whether we're talking about, you know, whether solar panels or wind can replace fossil fuels or whether, you know, should we go back to nuclear? I mean, it's good ESG thing. All of those, it's very fascinating because all of those conversations seem to happen in silos, right? If I'm a renewable energy guy, I'm just saying, yeah, yeah, solar and wind, solar and wind, solar and wind, maybe geothermal now too, right? We're starting to kick some of that. But I'm just saying, look, this is the future. This is the whole thing, right? And, you know, everybody's like, well, got to get away from fossil fuels because it pollutes. Well, what about the nuclear thing, right? Then you got no emissions, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, everybody seems to like just stay in their little lane and just talk about their own thing and not talk about what, if I've learned anything from all of these episodes of this podcast, it's that there's no one solution. It's a combo. It's a combo thing, right? There's some of this, some of that, and all together, that's how it's going to end up. Well, here's right? a here's here's a fun thought experiment, right? Let's say for tomorrow that the U.S. became like very much like France, and everybody was pro nuclear, and everybody loved nuclear power, right? And so we said, okay, cool, we'll build we'll build abundant nuclear power all over the U.S., and it's carbon free, and there's nuclear power plants everywhere. What do you need renewables for? Right at that point, you don't. Right. What purpose do they serve? You've already making carbon free power. Yeah. What's my, I mean, there are places where it makes economic sense in the middle of New Mexico. The sun's always shining, right? For local, it'll drive your your costs down. Well, but from a carbon management point of view, they serve no further purpose. Yeah, you've already done it. Hey, everybody, let me jump in here for a second just to thank our generous sponsors, Joliet Electric Motors. Without their support, this podcast wouldn't even be possible. 
So for all of your oil-filled electric motor needs, whether that's new motors, refurbs, field work, whatever you need, be sure and give Joliet a call. Remember, that's Joliet Electric Motors, powering today's energy and transition for tomorrow's energy needs. Let's get back to the show. So are they at odds? I mean, you have more of an insight. I mean, are the renewable guys and the nuclear guys at odds with each other? I mean, do they... Or, I mean, is that an argument I, that the nuclear guys put forward? Is like, hey, a, we wouldn't even need you guys hey, if we were just it's, using it's, this. It's aesthetics, man. And nothing <laughs> looks more beautiful than a bunch of wind turbines you know, and the sun's going down, looking over a hilly countryside. You're getting to the point where it's like, okay, now you got to start convincing congressmen and start getting into a national policy thing and what people like, the perception of the public is and what they want. But I would say that for, for the most part, a lot of the solar power that we're building in the United States, we're building for fun and money and profit. <laughs> Yeah, you know, yeah, because yeah. when you're when you're putting those you know those those tax credits in these big spending bills, when you say, "All right, we're going to build solar plants up in Minnesota," <laughs> right? When, yeah, when, exactly. when you're you're getting two or three times as much you know actual power output for the same size solar panel you're putting in New Mexico or Arizona, right. well, something's why? wrong. Yeah, why? Those why, decisions why are, are not up being in New made. Mexico. Yeah. Well, or why? Why up in Minnesota? You know what? Yeah, because. Because it's canon, because it looks good, it's political points, and, you know, the tax credits don't hurt. But, yeah. like, so let's kind of reel it back into the, to what we're talking about with the oil field. Get us back on the rails. Get mm, us back on the rails, um, Shane. So, I mean, like, in terms of your projects right now that you're working on, there's still a percentage of renewables going to, you know, developing this infrastructure, though, correct? Yeah, there are. There are folks that are, well, there are certainly folks that are looking at it. I can't say from my personal experience that there are folks who have done it that are finding it to be very profitable, sure. But there are certainly incentives to do it from a marketing or you know ESG or net zero, you know, point of view. And, and I'm not going to try and stand in their way, sure. But there are folks that are doing it. There are folks that are trying to do it. That are continuing to try and do it. And there are places where it may, so if, let's say you're an oil company. And you say you want to build a solar panel. Well, first things you want to build. First things people want to do is they want to build where they are, where they operate, where they, you know, where they have land. But from an economic standpoint, maybe that's not where it makes the most sense to build a solar plant. If you want to right. say, all right, well, if this is about money and I want to put in a solar plant, where does that make sense to do? Well, there are plenty of studies and you can go get the studies. And well, the best current right spot right now, the best tax forever, is maybe somewhere in the corner of New Mexico somewhere. Right. Maybe it's far away from your company. It's far away from your land. It's far away from everything you got. But you still have one. Right. And now it's plugged in over there and, you know, at the utility over there. But you're operating in Midland. And now what does that do for you? Right. So when it comes to renewables, they're not a part of the whole power solution when it comes to the demand of all the power that you're trying to produce. They're an add-on at this point. That's the way I see it. I mean, there are folks that are trying to, you know, building the microgrids and trying to integrate mm -hmm. it. And so there's the concept of the 4CP or the ERCOT has, you know, the biggest spikes in the summer. And if you can, you know, reduce the spikes that you have, you know, that you're metering and solars are an option for that, that you say you're going to take some of that load on your solar panels or your battery system and now reduce the rate that you have to pay because of the volumes that you are spiking in power demand at certain times. If you're covering that with internal generation, there can be some benefits to that in their studies, but it's not like just slinging solar panels whenever you want, wherever you want on land that you already have is going to make sense. So, yeah. And, so and, and, and a lot of times it doesn't make sense. It has to be, it has to be something that's very well like thought out, studied, looked at the models, you know, and you can't just be like slinging panels willy nilly and then and, and, and it's going <laughs> to. <laughs> but this is one of the things, I mean, that I often think about and end up talking with everybody about because, you know, technology and advancements and, you know, use of electricity, the advancements we made, 
All of that is great. And all this talk about ESG is great. But at the end of the day, if it doesn't make economic sense, nobody's sticking with it, right? I mean, if you get an ESG credit, if you get some kind of credit for some ESG moves you're making, that's great. But when those credits go away, you're done. I mean, you're only doing that to collect some money, right? I mean, you're so you need to, whatever solution people are coming up with to generate power on their own, like we were talking about, you know, some of the big operators becoming basically power, private power companies for their own personal consumption. That has to make economic sense, right? For a generation, I would say from the cases I've seen, more often it has made less sense than it has. Not saying that there aren't cases where people have, you know, made it make sense. And from a renewable point of view, I have not seen it make a lot of sense from a reliability point of view. Mm. You know, if, if you're putting in generation for reliability of it, solar is not really the way to go. It's going to be available a few hours of the day at best, and it's going to cost you a lot of money and take up a lot of square footage. And then you need probably a whole lot of batteries to hold on to that power for later on. And even still, to make good use of those batteries, you need a lot of them, a lot, a lot, a lot of them. You got to keep charging them. And it can get messy from a reliability sort of point of view. What you need is what's called dispatchable power. It says, there's an outage, or we need power now. Turn it on. And solar doesn't, and wind doesn't offer that. Right, exactly. You can't say, well, it's three o'clock in the morning, and some you know event has gone on with the transmission line. We need power now. Right. The renewables don't offer a reliability side of it. And that's where like natural gas-powered turbines come in, for and, example. And, right? and there are definitely folks leaning into that a little bit. And you know there is regulation. And I'm not in, like an air permitting or any regu- We have those folks that are company, but I'm not one of those folks. But there are you know hurdles to that when it comes to the regulatory side of now putting in an emission thing. But from a reliability standpoint, yes. Being able to immediately fire up you know a few hundred megawatts of generation or even 50, 100 megawatts of generation can keep your operations going. Absolutely. Right. And this is like, even in your experience then, so any of the operators who are working on building out their own grids and their own power distribution, including generation and all of that, I mean, the vast majority of that is coming from what power source? Is it gas-powered turbines? What we're, or is it tying back into the grid, existing grids? I mean, how are they doing well, that? Well, at the moment, what I'm seeing is that most folks are just putting a lot of effort into just more reliability from the existing grid. Oh, okay. Because that is easier and simpler, you know, to get a better relationship with your utility and build the substations and make the interconnections to the transmission lines is cost-effective and much more so than having to become a generation operator. You know, when right, you're an oil yeah. and gas company, now you're going to be a power plant operator. Right. At the same time, it's a whole different wing. It's not your core business. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's bad enough that they're going to have to operate their own basic distribution utility, right? To get their electricity wherever they want. Especially because if you're going to go through those efforts, now a lot of the folks that we're working with that really have these aspirations to build, you know, natural gas generation, which from a live, like, like I said, a reliability standpoint, that makes a lot of sense. It's dispatchable. You can say, hey, we need it now. Turn it on. Yeah. But what do you do with it otherwise, right? When you don't absolutely need it? Well, you can, you know, offset your load from the utility, but are you really going to get a better cost from, you know, a 200 megawatt generator burning your fuel than you will from the electricity rates? I don't know. I mean, that's something you should think about ahead of time because now maybe you've got this big machine that is less economic than just buying the same amount of power from the utility. Right. So now it's an emergency generator. That's a very expensive emergency generator. <laughs> so then the thought there is like, all right, well, why don't we run it? And, and we can look at when we run it, depending on what the spot market prices are on you know megawatt hours on, on ERCOT or something, and then sell power back to the grid. But even still, like that's now you're becoming a generation operator. Now you are getting in a whole class of a business line that there's a lot of people that do and a lot of people that do very well. There are a lot of folks that 
run these peaker plants all around Texas. And they know what they're doing. They know that business. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, it's a cautionary tale, you know, to tell some of these EMPs, like, you got to tread lightly to get into that. And you're going to be a generator operator and I was like, so, you know, sell power back to the grid. It's Right. You know. and, and it's all back to that economics thing, right? I mean, ostensibly, the large operators making decisions based on economics and economically, that sounds like it'd be a very difficult thing to pull off to make it, it, it make it, it you worthwhile. Know, right? you, in certain situations, you can find, you know, you can make the numbers work, but maybe in a lot of them you can't. And right. if you're, you know, it's like, why are we doing this? Are we doing this just because we want to have it? We're doing it just because we want to make a statement because we want a photo to, you know, to put on our advertising campaign. Well, then that's your benefit. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> I would hope there would be a lot of know, people doing the advertising campaigns. There, there are certainly that. folks that we work with that they're building a solar panel farm to build a solar panel farm and they got a picture of it next to their operations and that's it. High five. You got Done. it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to come across as like a renewable or, or generation hater because I mean, there are places where it makes sense. But, I mean, is the goal of – what is your goal of building one because you just need a project to do or you just want an emergency backup generator? I mean, if you have an emergency backup generator, that technology exists everywhere. You can go – I mean, hospitals have emergency backup generators. That's not new, right? Right. So why are we building – What? why are we building what we're building? Yeah, yeah. And that's a really basic question. I mean, that's like an early on – that's like an Omar question, right? It's like, do you guys really need all this? I mean, is it – well, what's the point of this whole thing? Because not only do you have – to make that economic decision whether to pull the trigger, you have to have be thinking about, okay, what is the real benefit to my shareholders and my company sure. from doing this, right? Yep. But also you have to think about can we actually pull this off? You know, what's the cost gonna be? Because we we're talking about there's bottlenecks on some really important things to putting together a grid by yourself, right? Yeah. So the funny thing is, like, you know, some of the C-suites in the EMPs, man, they're brilliant people, very smart people. Made their, you know, they're making billions of dollars for their company. They're geophysicists and scientists and have all these degrees, and, and they are really, really smart people about what they do. But some of the folks that I know from, like, Omar's team, for example, they have to sometimes occasionally do what's called, like, disapproval cases, where, you know, there's an executive or some C-suite person at an EMP somewhere who's made up their mind. They saw some report somewhere and or they've been influenced by someone somewhere at some conference or whatever. They're going to build a solar farm and batteries. They're going to do it. That's the way they're going to do it. And they tell the team, like, we're doing this. We're moving forward. This is the way forward. And so they start running the numbers and say, this is going to be a big cost. It doesn't make a lot of sense. It's not worth the payoff. But that person, that executive is convinced. Then it becomes a disapproval study. Like, all right. If you're telling me that, no, this makes sense, we need a third party to actually run us through all the numbers and show us how bad of an idea this is financially for the company. And, wow. and we have, or Omar's team, some <laughs> of the folks they work with have had to do that and turn around and say, look at the data. I right. know what your gut's telling you, but look at the numbers. And Wow. That's crazy, right? That it could be to that extent. I mean, the, because, you know, I think when the C-suite guys are influenced that way, it's pressure from the financial markets, it's pressure mm-hmm. from shareholders. Exactly. It's all this other pressure. And that would naturally be a very easy thing to succumb to, right? And there could be a shiny new thing like, oh, well, I heard that this company is making these types of batteries and whatever. And, you know, there's, you know, big name people all over the news with social media things that are, you know, promoting certain products or whatever. And it's the new biggest generational change shift and whatever. And it's easy to influence some folks that are not in that industry. Or yeah. somebody's getting ready to launch an IPO. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, there's so many, so many ways, I mean, that could be influenced. But let's say, I mean, like, you know, you got guys you're working with, you got projects that are underway now, but there are like some 
shortages are just basic things, right? I mean, well, let's talk about supply chain stuff and about inflationary costs. You know, we were talking earlier about contracts and people, you know, sign a contract. Oh, yeah, I'll give you this at this time. And then they're coming back and like, sorry, can't do it for that. Now I need more money and stuff. But, I mean, what about the fact, what were we talking about where, I mean, lead time went from four to six months to two years? So right now in the power industry, at least, what you know, the stuff that I'm working on, the biggest lead items right now, the biggest hurdle for that is power transformers. Not your small like liquid or not your small dry type ones that you do for 120 volt figures. I'm talking like, you know, three phase, maybe, you know, 69 kV. That means thousand volts, liquid filled, you know, big transformers that sit out in the outdoor substation yard where those may have been, you know, four to six month lead time pre-pandemic. Now we used to say, you know, lead time in weeks. You call it, we're at, you know, 30 weeks or we're at, you know, 40 weeks lead time. We don't use weeks anymore. <laughs> it went from weeks to months, and now it's like this is that's over two years. That is over two years. Two years. Get, two two years, years to put a transformer or high voltage circuit breakers. When you say sixty nine or one thirty eight kV circuit breakers for an outdoor substation, you can be looking at that long of a lead item, lead time now for a lot of these materials. So, yeah, I mean, some of these big buildouts that you're really looking at planning out and putting things on order or doing bulk orders. We have some folks that have got had they got smart out ahead of time and say, all right, well, this is such a problem for let's order 20. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that didn't mess with anybody either. Yeah, it doesn't right? mess with anybody else. Right? Now it's a push and pull with right? everybody, exactly. right? It's kind of yeah. like toilet paper when COVID started, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and then you get the knock-on inflation effect of nobody else can order them. I got 20 on order. And, and things are getting yeah. dirty. People paying to cut in line. That's insane to think that that could, I mean, that that is happening right now, right? I mean, even as we speak, that's not some imaginary fictitious thing that's going on. And it's got a real impact in the electrical infrastructure build out for, you know, the oil fields, because as these, the EMPs are moving towards things like electric, you know, drill rigs, they want the electrical infrastructure there. So when they show up with the drill rig and they plug it in, it's good to go. Right. But drill schedules change. You know, the electrical engineers don't get to tell operations and, <laughs> and uh, you know, all those, you know, real petroleum engineers, well, this is going to be available, you know, when I say it's available here. And so adjust your drill schedule to fit, you know, our right. project execution on the grid. No, no, no. no, no. <laughs> no I wish, right? I, I right. wish that I had that the electrical engineers so had some you, kind of So what like are you that. bringing? You bring in diesel generators then? That, or you, you bring know, in a gas turbine or uh, it, it's somewhere remote? I'm not going to say that our project teams have ever had to, you know, it's, do a, that. it's a customer, but, but you know, it is a schedule driven issue. You right. know, that drill rig is going to be there at that day and that infrastructure has to be in place ahead of time to support it, which yeah. is why you're building a grid for five, six, seven years worth of growth right. so that, you know, when they start drilling over there and that acreage over there, that infrastructure has already been there for a year. Right. Right. So for your, for your customers or for electrification of the oil field in general, right? It would be a good idea to have your hands on portable power and know exactly what kind of power you have available. Wouldn't you recommend that as a strategy moving forward? There, I would not say it's a bad idea to have good connections and business cards with folks who are you know, readily dispatchable with mobile power generation. And it's not a new concept. I mean, those guys are out there, friends of ours. They're out there doing it because it sure. happens. Yeah. Sure. The technology is electric drive. Right. I mean, and not even just drill rigs or, or frack rigs. I mean, a lot of folks are moving towards electric submersible pumps, the, you know, oh, the yeah, of ESPs, course. Yeah, right. Yeah. And they're going to sit there and, you know, pull, you know, three, four, five megawatts almost 24 hours a day. What are you going to do? Well, if, if you've got, you know, a hundred of those out in, in a megawatt, you're going to put like 
a hundred diesel generators out there and then go fill, you know, top well, up the diesel fuel every day. Well, that's where the renewable has an argument, right? If you, as long as you've got a way to coordinate with an energy storage system that's economical and reliable and can deploy enough to support that with whatever other power source to support it, that's going to be a rotary sort of power source. That's where it kind of makes sense to impart some sort of temporary disruptions for sure. But I mean, even with, you know, some of the best solar and battery systems that are out there right now being deployed, you know, on utility scale, I think in in California, some of their best, you get four hours out of the batteries. What kind of batteries are they using? Like what's the make, what's the chemical makeup, you know, are they lithium? I I think most most of them are lithium. I know that there has been, I'm kind of stepping out of my zone here. I mean, I've seen that, the, I saw a paper on like the vanadium redox ones where they're like the liquid ends. you're just changing the electrolyte. Sure. I don't think those have been deployed on a very big scale, but what I've, what I've seen, like they're containerizing these batteries. Mm-hmm. The, they just put big battery racks inside right, like shipping yeah. containers and put them out there. But yeah, I think mostly they're just a lot of cells of lithium batteries. Interesting. Wow. But at best, you're only getting a few hours. Right, exactly. In order to have them discharge for much, much longer, I mean, imagine you get two hours, or now you got to like double or triple the the amount of batteries you have to get you know an additional few hours out of it. Next thing you know, if you want to be able to get twenty four hours and just keep running off of, you're going to charge those batteries for a few hours every day on some solar panels, and then get the batteries to run for the rest of the, you know. Well, yeah, that defies physics hours. right there. Yeah, it basically exists as a, you know to provide redundancy and a little bit of extra reliability when you're going to use for temporary disruptions. Right, temporary disruptions. Yeah, no, it's definitely definitely true. But to it, run those ESPs out there, you need a reliable dispatchable source of electricity, and if you're not getting it from the utility, that's where some of those guys come in. It becomes diesel. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because if we tie back, <laughs> if we tie back to the first episode where we were talking about kind of like the do's and don'ts of putting together your grid and, you know, common pitfalls and things. It seems like, I mean, this episode and talking about like, I mean, you know, just stepping back, taking a look, do you really need it? And if you do, is it going to, can you build it out in a timely manner to meet what you're trying to accomplish? That's a real question. That's an important thing, right? Because if I say to you, Oh yeah, okay. Look, here's my schedule. I need to have my grid set up here at this date and you don't get that set up for whatever reason that is, whether it's there's no power or there's no right you know transformers, or- there's no whatever, then I just flushed a whole bunch of money down the toilet, right? I mean, in the end, a whole bunch of money. Okay, we let's unpack that one. <laughs> right? <laughs> Theoretically, if the electric drill rig shows up, and for some reason, what's I'm not saying this ever happened to us, but you know, the, the utility power is not available for it. Yes, there are those dispatchable, you know, folks that can sure. bring big, yeah, you know, systems sort of, of, of diesels out. But right. it's not like when the drilling is done and the fracking is done that electric need goes. Well, you're still going to have those ESPs, ESPs right? Yeah, right. So you're yeah. still building the infrastructure for the long-term running of the ESPs, right? How much of that, I mean, do you see, especially on the project side, then, I mean, I imagine, you know, in the best of all worlds, they want it out there when the first stuff starts showing up, right? Mm -hmm. Anything that can run off electricity is like, oh, yeah, just plug it in over here. Look, we got it all set up. And if it's not that, how tolerant are they or where do they kind of draw the line? I mean, you guys, as somebody who's building it, I mean, I'm sure you have to give guarantees of some kind, right? I mean, there's some contractual things about like, look, man, we're building this out for this, you know, I mean, how does that how does that work for a firm like us? We have to stick to our project schedule. We work on a project schedule where we're going to build what at what time and what phases with the power engineers of that EMP. 
Oh, okay. Right. So that EMP's got their own power engineers, and they've got they've got to be able to work with their internal operations folks to say, look, this is their general plan that they're going to be drilling here or moving here or you know in this big geographic area that we're putting the grid in, grid in overall. And then based off of what they're getting from operations and their drilling schedules, they have to turn around and communicate with us what circuits, distribution line circuits are going to get prioritized where. And, ah, okay, and, and that's right, our direction, yeah. right? Yeah, start um, here, start here, and then we're going to be over there. So make sure this is going first and then move over there. And, and then, all that goes out the window if, they, if operations turn around. So, yeah, we've changed our drilling schedules because we found a different, you know, something in the, the geophysics yeah. data. And then that throws chaos. That, right? uh, that doesn't happen ever, does it? <laughs> <laughs> Someone comes and changes the schedule on you, no, whatever, right? No, well, man. I, I know that, you know, on the EFRAC side, because we're fortunate enough to be providing some horsepower and displacing the diesel out there. And a lot of that, a lot of the power solutions out there are these mobile power units, right? Yeah. And a lot of them are these high, you know, large gas turbines. There's also gas, natural gas reciprocating engines and so forth. But my understanding is that there's limited, those assets, there's limited production available to support the demand. And then you have what we were talking about earlier, where you have Epstein saying, hey, the EPA is coming in and cutting 10 to 20% of national, you know, reliable power. So now, now you're fighting for load capacity on the grid. Yep. And, you know, not everybody's showing their cards, right? So let's see your EMP1 and your EMP2. Right. Well, now you're like, all right, I know that I need, you know, 50, 70 megawatts on the grid. And you're having that conversation with the utility, but you're not talking to EMP2 about their plans. And they're talking to the utility. Right. Like, oh, we need 50 or 70. You know, and then, then number three and four, everybody, everybody has their own demands. And eventually the utility is like, well, well, who's first in line? Because... Mm-hmm. Right, because we if if you do, you know, one, two, three, four, and add everyone's demand, like you're it's gonna, too much. You, right, you run out. You well, get, that's what well, it becomes. Last in line, it's like sorry, no more load capacity for you. And that's where you get the inflation, right? I mean, because if I had four operators who needed exactly the same amount, but I could only provide three, I don't know. Is that a thing you can do in the market and just go and say, guess what, you guys, I'm going to supply to you, but we need to redo the contracts because it's going to cost you more. There's still a public utility. I mean, there's still. I don't want to step too far in my lane. I think that's one of those questions that Omar can speak to quite a bit more, having you know his background uh, in, in ERCOT and all that. But it's not like for more money, we'll find more megawatts, right? Right. I mean, it is when, what it when is. It's, right? When it's yeah, run out, yeah, when yeah. the capacity available is run out, it's run out. Right. And that's, I mean, that's a very real issue, you know, as, as, you know, not just ERCOT, but different ISOs, they want to start, you know, shutting down these thermal power sources, you know, their yeah. coal plants or, or whatever. Right. And not saying that I want, you know, coal plants to exist forever, but you... <laughs> Sure. You, if we're going to electrify the world, you have to be, you know, putting megawatts into the grid if you want to take them back out. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, kind of my point is when I'm trying to drive home and, and, and you guys never are going to ever miss a delivery schedule. That's never going to happen. Ever. Never has happened, happen. right? Nope, 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 nope. So that's why you go burn some Mac glazes. <laughs> exactly. But at the end of the day, when it comes to, you know, bridging a gap, if there's, you know, worst case scenario, it's a good idea to have a plan B because there's multiple demand drivers that are taking away the options that are available where the end user, the customer can benefit from lower emission power source like a gas Absolutely. turbine. Right? 100%. Yeah. I mean, those folks are all partners in this. And not just because, I mean, I don't know how many EMPs are actually going to electrify 100% of their assets. Sure. Doesn't make it sense. Just, you know, there are just geographical outliers. You know, like ninety right. percent of your oil, your your pads are in this. Or they're or they're going to be running area. diesel backup power to, to support mm -hmm. the power until they have. And then the you've got that replaced. one pad right. that's just like fifty miles right. out there on the other side right. of the town. Like it's not going to doesn't make sense to right. build a single like sixty mile power line <laughs> out there to power like one oil pad. Like it just right, yeah. it doesn't. 
and you're not going to build a new substation, a new transmission line for it. Like it's just spend, four acres of solar you know, panels, like fifty million dollars for like one one oil pad. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. No, no. So that's interesting. So Simon, wrapping this up, then. So like from your side, you know, from the planning, the engineering, construction side, what would be the one takeaway you'd want operators to remember? Well, I mean, I was going to answer to like, you just need a long-term partner that is going to help you with those plannings. It's going to work with your operations and get out of those drill rig schedules because you don't want to be the power engineer at, you know, oil company A saying like, yeah, we, we spent all this money and ordered the transformers and everything like that. And then the electric drill rig shows up and utility power just didn't make it in time. And now you got to change your whole schedule on that drill rig. Like, that would be terrible. Because the partnership is the key thing, right? Because these are not one-off things that you... It's not like you're buying a new iPhone or something. It's going to be around for a long time. Right. You need somebody who's going to be with you the whole time. Same project team, same yeah, people. Yeah, exactly. Need partnership in it. But I mean, also the other key point, I think Omar and I talked about this on the, on the last one. Maybe we did, maybe we didn't, or, or to what you know perspective. But the EMPs that are building the electrical infrastructure like this, you can't just think of yourself as a support wing of your company. Like you have to start treating that wing of your company as its electric utility. You're going to start being operating 1,600 mm -hmm. miles of distribution lines. Yep. And you got to start thinking about like asset management and monitoring and then having, you know, maintenance plans and programs. I mean, if somebody drives into the wood pole by your house and takes up power, you know, in, in 30, 45 minutes, Centerpoint Energy, whoever the local utility is out there, they're out there with bucket trucks, they go on the filter, you know, Max, they have yards with extra transformers and wires that they go fix it. They respond because that is their obligation as a utility and they are set up for that. Yeah. And unless you're thinking that way, you're not going to have that stuff mm -hmm. because the bean counters are going to be like, what do we got all this stuff sitting around for? Why do we what? have a big yard full exactly. of wood poles and transformers? Exactly. Because like, you're going to need them in a heartbeat. Yeah. You, know, you got to have yeah. that section back online in 45 minutes if there's a lightning strike or a whatever. Yeah. Well, it sounds like to me that, and not to be a negative Nelly here or anything like that, but I mean, in terms of reaching the goals that are out there for the year 2030, that's not too far away seven years away and we might might have to temper those expectations a little bit for the ideal of having you know whatever the old field electrification is that we're headed towards whatever that ideal is sounds like we're gonna have to temper that a little bit yeah for a lot of reasons right i mean what simon's been saying right but i mean also the you know you got capacity you got shortages in equipment and, Supply and, and supplies i mean there's a whole myriad of reasons and and so that's interesting because that would make another great episode somewhere down the road talking just about hey frac capacity is expected to expand by this much you know we need this much infrastructure behind that are those numbers realistic or not Right. right, because that will curtail the use of electricity in the oil field if you can't build a grid, you can't right. get the equipment to finish the grids, and people are just going to be like, "Well, no, you know, we, we you'll, just you'll can't be do running it. electrically; you just be using diesel to generate." The <laughs> that's power. true. That's true. That's true. Which kind of which kind of degrades the benefit, the ESG benefit you get from running electricity, right? <laughs> right. But, but no, I, but it's not all ESG. You know, I mean, right. so public folks are doing ESG, but the private folks, you know, there's still value in. Sure. Hey, look, I mean, your ESPs. Are going to be you know three five megawatts of power you know pull 
each month and if you're going to put generators out there for each one or you're going to hook it up to utility power yeah yep. does, then, does that equation change a lot though because i guess it depends on sheer number right of esps you got underway but low, I low mean, density how many of them are, are in one how, how tightly packed the wells yeah, are basically right. right yeah okay interesting so then it becomes a question well if you have a wood pole going out to each one with its own independent meter now you're going to pay like you know 200 you know power bills every month for every meter going out to every esp Right. Or do you have like one centralized substation with one meter on it to the utility and then feed it from there? You know, it's designing. Now your billing department only pays one invoice for, you know, what I would call it, you know, 80 megawatts of load versus like having 50 meters, power meters for, you know, three megawatts each. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Now, that's fascinating. But does the math always work on that? Like if we say, because now, you know, with pad drilling and stuff, you get a whole bunch of wells. There'll mm-hmm. be a whole bunch of wells down there. I mean, the numbers are huge on some of those. When you look at the underground visualization of what those wells oh, look like. Lines, yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. But where does that crossover happen, right? Is it like, hey, man, I got 100 wells in one acre. So that makes sense to do that. Or is it 200 wells or what 42. is it? 42? <laughs> I have no idea. I'm just that. <laughs> that's, that's the answer to the universe. Of course, that's the answer to life. No, but yeah, those so are, there's, no, there's no static math on that. It's case by case. Sure, yeah. And those are the types of studies and planning things that Omar's teams does. They, they do like those different scenarios and call, you know, economic you know, analysis on, well, this, if you wanted to say electrify all these 100, you know, then that's this much money, which is this much per well, but then if you did like 50, but and then that's going to depend on how spaced out they are, where you'd have to put the substation, what the substation capacity would have to look like, proximity to the local transmission line. You kind of need like a custom analysis of like, you, know, you get your KMZ, your Google you know, Earth files or whatever software you're going to use, the ArcGIS, and start looking at where are your well pads at, where mm-hmm. could you actually feasibly put a substation of what voltage class, and then distribution circuits, if you want to do all this. This would be a plan for, you know, 150 wells of this type. Well, right. And then in this area over here, I was like, okay, well, that's kind of expensive, but these kind of are far out of the way. And what if we, you know, took out all these geographic outliers and just did the hundred ones that are, you know, more clumped together closer in this area? Oh, well, now our price per well has gone down a whole lot, right? Well, yeah, that's a lot of variability, man. Yeah. That's a lot of, it's a lot of variabilities in that equation for sure. So that's the important thing to remember, Shane, get a partner. Isn't that the same with Joliet, right? When you're talking about electric motors, isn't it the same? Get a partner, man. You got to have somebody who's going to stand behind what they're doing. Isn't that right? Absolutely. Reliability. Reliability. Redundancy. (laughs) That's it. And availability. And availability. Building good partnerships. Yeah, exactly. And ability to execute. So maybe we should, that should be the title of this episode, Building Good Partnerships. Because that's it, man. No matter, and I think that's a lesson, you know, okay, here in our discussion, but in the larger oil field and in life in general, right? I mean, you know, if you get a lawyer when you're younger and you stick with that guy. You're going philosophical here, folks. That's that's what I'm saying, man. I'm saying, no, it's true, man. It's true. You know, you want to have relationships, reliable people. You know, here's a funny one. Car mechanics, you know? Absolutely. I mean, you get a good car mechanic, man. You don't let that guy go, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. you're taking every car you buy to that same guy. So it's the same thing. It's all about partnerships, whether it's with Burns and Mac, Joliet, or even with World Oil for that matter, right? So there you go. You're not going to build long-term relationships being a transactional person. 
Absolutely not. Yep. Ooh, that was beautiful. <laughs> well, that was beautiful. Absolutely. We can't say it any better than that, Simon. So thank you for being <laughs> yeah, on the show. Absolutely. Shane, you got anything else before we wrap up? No, no, no zinger questions. I think we covered pretty much everything I can think of at this point. Simon. Holy cow, we did cover yeah, a lot. Simon, That's we for appreciate sure. you coming back oh, this on. Is so much fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah appreciate yep. you guys. And Simon, oh, Simon. Sorry, Shane, yeah. whoever you are, yeah. we got one more episode, man, which we're wow. going to record live at the FRAC conference, which is just next week. Just and we'll kind of do a recap and talk about the FRAC market in general and EFRAC in specific. Yeah. Right? yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun to revisit the conversations we have. And, and you know, it's really nice is the, all the conversations that we've had starting, you know, last March, they're all still very relevant. We're still just getting started when it comes to you know, electrification in the oil field. So I'm looking forward to catching up and revisiting all those conversations. Yep. All right. We'll talk to you next time. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening to today's guest. If you have any questions related to today's episode, please email us at oetpodcast at worldoil.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Joliet Electric Motor that's been providing engineered custom motor solutions for the oil field for over 30 years. If you have any questions related to your motor needs, please email me at shaneh at joliettelectricmotors.com.